This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Ed and Judy Belfour. It was recorded at Red Pump Spirits in Washington, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Red Pump Spirits and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, F.A. Nation, let's meet our guests. We are here at Red Pump Spirits in Washington, Pennsylvania. I'm sitting down with Ed and Judy. And uh, this is open. We're, we're an open distillery right now. We have guests coming into the distillery, and we're going to do a podcast. Um, but, Ed, welcome to the podcast, and uh, we're glad to have you. Well, thank you for coming to visit us. We appreciate it. Ed, tell me, how, how did all this for you and Judy, how did you get started in, the, in distilling? Uh, I got started. I'm a chemist by training. My background is. By the way, going into the back and seeing where your distillery and everything, your ferment, I mean, I can tell you're meticulous. Everything has a place. I, I, you, you have this chemist mindset to you. So I, that, that resonates the minute I walk back there. Yeah, we try to do that. It's, uh, you know, it's professionalism to do it that way. There's a couple, you know, of course, the manufacturing plant. Uh, Safety is always an issue. You can't have things lying around. It's you know, something a lot of people don't think about in a manufacturing plant or even a distillery. That's important. Um, and it just, I think, uh, the way you run your business and the way you take care of your equipment is also a reflection of the quality of your products and the service that you offer to people. So, so what, what, what was it, as a chemist, what was it that you made? What were you producing? Well, I, I, uh, when I got uh, out of graduate school, I went to work in industry, private industry, general electric and the plastics business. I had a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, background in that. And uh, I, I retired about five years ago as a professor at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. So what did you teach chemistry. at the Naval? You taught chemistry. chemistry. Yeah. So what were some of the things you taught our, our, our naval military officers? What were you teaching? Well, we just teach them you know, basic, basic chemistry because a lot of chemistry goes on in, on a ship, for example. You know, the plumbing, uh, the pipes corrode. Uh, they have to know why that happens, how to prevent it from happening. And I would never have thought of that. I, I honestly would have, I would have thought of military history. I would have thought different things about uh, tradition, but but not necessarily chemistry. Well, that, there's a lot of that, of course, that goes on. That's a, that's a big part of it, most, one of the most important parts. But actually, at the Naval Academy, unlike the other academies, every person who comes in has to take chemistry their first year. So there like 1,500 students taking chemistry over a broad, broad uh, you know, uh, group of people. Uh, but then I also was involved in the, uh, like the second and third year students. And a lot of those go into like the medical professions. Okay. Uh, so, you know, obviously medicine, 
dentistry uh, also. Some will go into, you know, into uh, you know, explosives, for example. And there's a lot of that in the military, obviously. Now, do you have a history of blowing things up? Uh, well, when I was younger. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did well, you like to so blow up as a kid? <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, anyways, that you know, so I had that background there, and of course, at, at the academy, it's it's, it, yeah, it's a very strict environment. To, so that you see some of that discipline carried over in my work back here. And everything has to be done by the numbers. When you're in the military, you don't get a lot of freedom. <laughs> you do things by the numbers. So it sounds to me like, I mean, even talking to you, you've always had structure in your life. Yeah. You, sure. You've, you've sure. led a very structured, detailed yeah. life. Yeah, and that was, you know, when I, when I retired, I, wasn't gonna, I was going to do something. I knew that. Uh, and I went, obviously, doing something entrepreneurial is much different than doing something structured. At least on the surface, it appears that way. Now you get the chance to be more creative yourself. Uh, do the kind of things the way you wanted to do them, etc., and things like that. Uh, you know, and eventually it comes back to structure, but you get the entrepreneurial opportunity to structure it the way you want. So, and that's where we started our business. So, how did you pick distilling? How did you pick opening up a distillery? What was it about that that stood out for you? Is it something you've always been interested in? Uh, I've been interested in uh, in in, uh, in whiskeys. <laughs> Drinking. The college days, yeah. On, okay. the other end of it, yeah. on the other end of the bar, instead of the back side of the bar. Um, but I was a winemaker, an amateur winemaker for many years. We're out of my family. We're, local people. We're from the local coal mines. Uh, and a lot of ethnic groups there. Everybody made their own wines. So and we carried that on, Judy and I and my sons. We always made wine over the years. Are you still making wine, too? Uh, we haven't last couple of years, because only because of lack of time here. But uh, this summer, I'm ordering some grapes, for sure. So uh, I'm curious, you you have had a history of winemaking in your family, but how did you pick distilling spirits instead of just going into making, being a winery? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, you know, five, about six years ago when I, the first I, idea first came up, there were a lot of wineries you know, already, and we had a good local one here, uh, a lot of breweries, so, but in spirits at that time, there's only a couple of people actually, and now it's quite a few of them. But, you know, Wiggle was down there um, in, in Pittsburgh. There was uh, one down in Chalk Hill, uh, Ridge Runner. Okay. Um, and us and Liberty Pole about the same time. I think it was in a few months of each other we started. So that was it. Now there's a dozen. But So it looked like there's an, there was an opportunity there. And also a, uh, you know, a matter of uh, it looked like a good business to get into financially. And that's that part was a good decision. So you have the chemistry side of things. Yeah. So you understand the chemistry of fermentation and distilling and the whole process. And then you also have the structure by which you've always had. Yeah. Um, talk about how did you come up with the name Red Pump? Okay, it's in the corner behind me. You can see it back there. Now uh, uh, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting story. We always like to tell the story. Everybody comes in when we give our tours. Uh, I grew up in an old farmhouse, just 12 miles down the road here in Cokeburg, um, and the house was built in 1786, which actually preceded the Whiskey Rebellion Festival here. By which is why we're here. This would have been Whiter. Whiskey Rebellion weekend. That's right. That's right. Uh, and the, the house is an old farmhouse. It was many years ago, obviously, built by a judge, prominent judge, and bought a whole bunch of property, of course, around it. They may even made whiskey there. We, we don't know that for sure. So there's no documentation. But let's face it: everybody yeah, made some distilled spirits, or maybe maybe yeah. made a, um, a a cider or something like that. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I grew up there with my grandparents and my mother. Uh, 
but over the years, the, uh, the house changed hands a few times. Then in the early 1900s, when the coal companies found all these coal around here, different coal patches, and uh, Cokeburg was uh, one of those areas they picked. And obviously the name... Cal- I'm thinking Cokeburg, was that the original name of the town always, or yes. did they change it? It was Cokeburg. Okay. The reason was the whole town was ringed by Coke ovens yeah. in the old days. Like, you know, they just shoveled them in beehive ovens. Anyways, uh, so the, the coal company at that time bought up all the land around there and made company houses. And the, this was the only house in town that wasn't built by the coal company. And it retained its name, the farmhouse. In fact, we used to get mail to come. And just, it was addressed just, the farmhouse. Just the farmhouse. Oh, cool. <laughs> the street address is not. The postman always knows, hey, if it's addressed to the farmhouse, it's got to be for them. They knew exactly where it was. So that's what happened. So, uh, and then my grandparents bought it when they came to the United States from you know, across the, the pond there. You know, for a few hundred dollars. Where'd your grandparents come from? Italy. Italy. Central Italy. Okay. So that's why you make a really good limoncello. Yeah. It's the family heritage. <laughs> it's a heritage. We better. They might yeah. be looking back. <laughs> they didn't do that right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, so anyways, that, but beside that house was a pump. And that's the pump that was beside the house. Um, and I won't get into too many other details, but I inherited the house after my mother passed away. Uh, and then she wanted, for whatever reason, for us to take that pump. I think it was a family thing. It wasn't the original pump when the house was first built in the 18th century, but it's well over 100 years old. And it was it was just painted red there. It didn't work, and my grandmother just planted flowers around it on top of you know that big stone platform that was there. So I, it, when, uh, when I sold the house, took the pump, and had it at our house for a number of years until we decided to open this up, at the time we were thinking about starting a business, you know, you got to think about a name. And Judy has a nice garden out back where the where the, uh, the pump is located. We walked out and walking around, I looked at it and said, "That's the name of the business right there, Red Pump Spirits." It just came to you, but it pays homage to your family's history. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I always think about you. Know, Zig Ziglar used to talk about a a, a pump, and. It's probably very similar to the idea that of how to start a distillery because you start with these raw products. You, you just don't open up with bottle sales and everything else. Right. It takes time, right? Absolutely. You, you, you've got to develop your product. You've got to develop your, your build and everything else. But you've got to keep working the pump. And you work the pump and you work the pump. And eventually things start slowly, right? And then they start to come out of the pump. The, the water starts to come out of the pump. Very similar to what you're doing in your in your distillery business where you're starting with the first couple of products. Mm-hmm. You're starting to develop a following to your business. And then as you prime the pump, as the pump goes, your business can start to develop and grow from there. Mm-hmm. And it sounds very similar, even though that may not be the heritage or may not be the lineage or, or the legacy, but it sounds like there's there's a, a lot of symbolism to that red pump for you. Yeah. You know, hey, you're a chemist. You decided to go into the distillery business. You know, you, you got to start working the pump. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Got to get in and get your hands dirty. You like getting your hands dirty. I, I love it, yeah. You, you're, you're very, you're very hands-on, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. What was the first spirit that you and Judy produced here? I mean, it sounds like you're very much a team here. Yeah, well, we the first thing we wanted to do was make whiskey. Okay. Uh, and the rye whiskey is the first thing that came to mind because we were familiar with the history of this area around here. 
so that's what we actually made first, as far as what I mashed and fermented and put in the pot. And then we had to put it in a barrel. Uh, and we also made another whiskey called the Farmhouse Whiskey. Okay. That's which that's a tribute to the farmhouse. Right here, right here. Okay. Today. And there's some barrels of it downstairs and back over here. So and that's a mild wheat whiskey. It's much different than a rye. So those were our first two products. And that was like in late 2015. We're like, we're in our fifth year now. Uh, but you still have to make some money. So uh, just by accident, uh, we were visiting one of our sons, two of our sons in Denver. And one of them said, let's go to this distillery in town for a tour. What was the distillery? Do you remember? Well, it was Leopold Brothers. Okay. One of the finest, probably the finest craft distillery in the United States. They've been around about 20 years. They were one of the pioneers way back. Uh, they made liqueurs. One of the things they made was liqueurs. Um, they're very successful at it. So we went to tour there and walked around, and you know, they had their rye whiskey there. A different style, the Maryland-style rye, which is more typical. Ours is Longhala-style rye. And uh, they said these liqueurs, and it sounded like a pretty interesting thing to do. So we asked them how they made it, and they showed us. They came back and said, that's what we're going to do. Because you can turn those around in four or five weeks. Absolutely. So uh, that's how we got into the liqueur business. So that's what you became known for first here in Washington, right? Absolutely, yeah, because we had them ready to go. All the stuff sat in the barrel, the only thing we could sell was the course. Uh, I remember that first year, the whiskey were valuable, we, we sold a lot of them. Uh, we had some rye whiskey, but it was pretty young, and uh, that we thought it was pretty good, but now I look back on it and said, that wasn't so good. <laughs> right. But that's the way it goes. And, you know, people, you know, we got our name out there, people did like it. Uh, and it wasn't any different most people's rye around here at the same time. Uh, we're all in about the same boat, so it was passable to people. But the liqueur is what got us started, and it's still our biggest uh, product line by far because it's, it's a much bigger line than just, just whiskeys are. You mentioned the Whiskey Rebellion, and obviously Dawn and I are here for Whiskey Rebellion, the festival, which isn't happening because of COVID. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean to the town, or, or what, what does it really mean by missing not having it this year? Well, you know, what it really... Uh, it, it, what bothers us the most, I mean, you lose sales, obviously, a substantial right. amount of sales. That's probably the biggest event of the year. But it's a community event. Um, we just go down and have a lot of fun. We have, we have you know, an uh, operation here, obviously, selling a couple extra people brought on to sell. We sell at another place here at the marketplace in town. And we, Judy and I like to go to the, the Rebellion Festival just to meet the people. We meet a lot of new people. And it's a community event, and we just feel good uh, going to that. That's, I think, what we miss you know, more anything. Yeah, what's the community's feeling about, I mean, is that the same thing that mo- most people in the community right now just miss having people come in and just the big festival? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Even the businesses uh, that aren't involved in making whiskey or spirits of any kind, like you know, a, a, a deli up here, a clothing store down here at David's Clothing, uh, they enjoy it a lot. And of course, obviously customers come in and that helps a lot. But I think it's, it just helps everybody just feel good about the, the rebirth of Main Street in Washington. Even though it's still a long, long way to go, as you can see, there's not much happening. Yeah, and, and we were here last year after the festival, and it seems like the impact of COVID has, has hit some of the businesses along Main Street here, and unfortunately they've had to close. Yeah, unfortunately that's the case. Um, restaurants obviously get hit really hard on something like this. It's hard for them to come back. Hopefully most of them will, because we had a nice little growth pattern going. You really did. We really did have something nice going on here. 
Uh, but you know, I think the other side, you know, people around this area are pretty tough and they're pretty resilient, and they want to make things happen. Uh, you know, the uh, you know on the, on the political side of it, and, and the, you know, the county leaders and the city leaders, you have to go through a learning process of how to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not because they aren't trying. But you can see every every year, in the five years we've been here, there's been another learning process about how to bring these, these areas back. And it, it, it's going to get there, and I think it will. What was it like? What was it like starting your distillery? And and you mentioned dealing with you know the local government. Yeah. What was it like for you to, to, to approach them and say we want to start a distillery? Well, it was uh, to be honest with you, it was quite frustrating. Okay. Uh, but that was because of lack of knowledge how to do it on our side as well as from the side of the of the officials. Uh, obviously, you know, getting a, a permit from federal government is difficult, very tedious process. Um, you know, it took over six months just to go through all the bureaucracies of that. Um, and that was because at the same time that we were applying is when the distillery explosion started to take over. And the TTV was massively undermanned to handle all these applications and stuff. Uh, but then at the local level, uh, once we got talking to the right people and who to talk to and had to meet the codes and had to do some engineering work to make sure the building was, you know, structurally... Because this is a retail business. Yeah, I mean, this is unique because a lot of distilleries that we'll go to and we'll visit don't necessarily, they're not in like a storefront area. Yeah. They might be more of an industrial area right. or, a, or a standalone area. Not necessarily like this. This is a very unique setup that you have. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for us. We, we, we got it uh, just being practical. It was available. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at these, these buildings around, there's not a lot available. It's, you, know, you could put any kind of a business in other than maybe a, a smoke shop or, or, or something small, little coffee shops and things like that. But to put in a, you know, this is a light industrial business. Uh, it's not heavy industrial, but it's a light industrial. So you had to have buildings that were solid. And this was just a matter of being practical, and it worked out for us. It wasn't any great insight for us to put up a storefront on Main Street. That was just plain dumb luck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's perfect. I mean, just the way it worked out for you. Yeah, sometimes, you know, good things happen. Look, it, it sounds like, to me, this is a passion for you and Judy. And, and I get a sense like that you're enjoying the side that this is becoming a business or it has become a business. Mm -hmm. But your feeling is, look, we get up, we get to wake up every day and you get to make spirits, right? You get, right? You, Judy, you're, you're, you're making a big smile. So what were, you, what were you thinking about that? You do. You make something that makes people happy. <laughs> Have you always been a hands-on person? Is that something you've done? Uh... Hands on all our children, yeah. Oh, how many kids do you have? Four. Four kids, okay. Yes. Yeah, I started out in uh, research. Is that how you both met? No, we're both in the same area, one same high school. Okay. So you've known each other since high school. Yeah. God bless you. Good for you. Judy comes from a farm family. Okay. Her father was a, a small pharmacist. So, but, but you were smiling about you get to make people happy. Yes. That's a good feeling for you. Yes. Um, yeah, it's nice. Uh, are you so? So who who says we want to make this? Who who's in product development? Who comes up with the ideas? Uh, not us. Not not you. It's the uh, the customers. Okay. We have people that come in and say, "Why aren't you making this?" Really? And you say, "All right, we'll try." I hadn't thought of that. What was the first thing that you made? 
Like I said before, the rye whiskey was the... Right, but you laid that down. But I guess I my question is, what was the first thing you sold to the public or provided to the public? Is that the blackberry? Blackberry liqueur. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like that was a home run. Yes. Oh, it was. It's, it's still our... Well, it's the second biggest product now, but for the first three years, that's stuff just sold like crazy. What's the first biggest product you produce? What's the, what's your main largest seller? Right now, the blood orange liqueur is okay. by far. We introduced that about a year and a half ago. Again, I'm somebody said, would you make this? Yeah, it sounds like you know something you should make. It's, it's become real popular because now it's a very cocktail-heavy drink. There's nobody, well, I, I think there's one other person that makes a blood orange in the United States. Um, that would be Five Saints Distillery in Norristown, Pennsylvania. It, yeah, it could be. It could be. So there was, look, I thought about that, so there's no competition. What's Why nice about doing that? the blood orange liqueur, though, is now you have, an, you, you have a Grand Meunier or an orange liqueur substitute if you're making cocktails and you want to do that. Because in Pennsylvania, if you want to be, you know, you, you can't get Grand Meunier and make a cocktail out of it. So by making, you having the blood orange liqueur, it's a very close product yeah. to doing that. Sure. It's, it's done well, well for us. They made bars by, by the case. We sold a couple of cases this past week. Uh, retail customers who, who buy from us buy you know, six. We, we shipped out some the case of six of those just down here to Pittsburgh. So now I'm curious if your customers are telling you what ideas to produce. What's still working that you haven't made yet or what are you still thinking about making? Uh, in the short term, nothing else. Okay. Because of the limitations of time and capacity is what we have. We get a lot of suggestions, whether it's tequila or <laughs> you know, some things that you uh, think I would not make. Right. But you get those suggestions from people. Um, if I was going to do something else next, I'd stay in the whiskey and it'd probably be something like a single malt. Okay. So, I mean, we talked about that. I mean, you, you talked about and mentioned you were a whiskey drinker. So, so your your desires and passions lead more to whiskey. I mean, especially growing up in this area, right. with you mentioned the Monongahela style rye, and you know that idea. So, so you stay closely on your rye to the Monongahela style, Monongahela style mm-hmm. of of what you want to produce, right? Right. And and, right. and kind of follow that heritage. Yeah. So I, I could certainly see that being a desire for you to produce what you enjoy drinking. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> what do you find has been the biggest impact right now of, of COVID? How has that impacted you and your business right now? Besides having to wear the mask and having to have them all in hand all the time. From a business side of it, obviously they're dropping sales. Pretty significant on the retail end. Uh, we made up some of that when the, when the liquor stores were, were shut down. We got a lot of online calls and you know, from front <clears throat> people we have given to you know up front here, they're just calling them with me to my front. Um, but it didn't compensate for the amount of losses we get. Saturdays was always nice in here, like today. Look at it today; it's uh, not much going on. We don't we don't emphasize cocktails, so you know the that part of the business was never uh, big to us. So we didn't feel that impact like a lot of distilleries. Fifty you percent know, of their income was selling cocktails, right? And entertaining. Well, I might sell six cocktails a month, to be honest with you. That's it. And we aren't, we didn't even want to be in that game. So that part didn't hurt us, but the walk-in retail trade was good. The other, the other big thing was events. Uh, 
from yeah. a business perspective, like to talk about this this golf event back. Yeah, you do a charity event with the you have a little golf putting event, the yeah, golf putting event. green there. And uh, there's a local person here who's lost their daughter, young, to cancer. So he set up this this, this foundation, and he has money raising events during the year. This is one of them. It's the biggest one financially for him that made money. And any business that wants to participate in it can, but you got to build your own golf hole. So, and on on a Saturday afternoon, it's in August, groups of foursomes come around, and they all sign up ahead of time. They pay a fee to, to the foundation, and they just show up, and it's a five, six hours of nothing but fun. So I love this. So the idea, if I'm picturing this, you had this little town of Washington, Pennsylvania, and all these local businesses are setting up their own little putt-putt hole that they're yeah. making, the little miniature golf hole. You go into the establishment, and I guess at the end of the night, you, you tally up the scores and see what foursome won, right? Yeah, they all, they all uh, it finishes up over at the American Legion Hall, and they have a dinner, uh, a raffling, things like that. There's prizes for a number of for, you know, for the foursome that had the low scores or things like this. So it's a lot of fun. And while they're here, of course, uh, they, they do buy our cocktails and sometimes we'll walk out with bottles. So, you know, financially, it's a big number for us. Uh, so things like that. There's other outside events. There's a couple library events we go to, one up in Zelenopel for the, or actually it's in New Harmony for Zelenopel Public Library. Big event for us in June. You know, it's gone. Uh, things like that where we, we bring in pretty significant amount of money. So that part has hurt our business. That's, we miss that. It's a lot of fun going to places because you see new people all the time. Uh, you know, you've mentioned that a couple times about the people. You've really enjoyed interacting with people. Oh, yeah. And that's really, I mean, whether, you know, it's hard because people don't know how to interact and we're, nobody's really sure what to do right now, right? I think this business being just the two of us, People come in and want to, well, how do you do this? They go, Ed, come out here and explain how you do this. <laughs> so they get to talk to the distiller, and it's just right there. Well, can I look back there? Okay, you can peek through the door. <laughs> it's something. So it's, it's a very, uh, you know, you can get a, a very close and intimate with the customers who come in. You enjoy that, right? Yes. So that, you know, you've been open now for five years. Right. Is, is that one of the biggest things that you've you've both felt that, in this point where you've decided to open a distillery, but you really enjoy, hey, who's going to come through the door today? Mm-hmm. Like you've got you've got the Fermented Adventure podcast people showing up today. You don't know what to expect, but it, it's all because like we met at Whiskey Smash in West Overton. Um, we did get a chance to sit down there, but it's all about interacting with people, isn't it? And yeah. and 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 the and, and the experiences. I mean, this is. You just had a couple in here. I mean, they, 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 they bought a couple bottles, it looks like. They had a great experience. They, they love your product. Yes, they How does that them. feel when somebody walks out with a bottle of something you made? Especially if they're local people. They come in and they have the drink. I'll take the drink, but I also want the bottle because we're going to visit friends. And they want to share what you're making. Yes. So how does that feel for you? It makes what? you feel really good that Still. somebody likes you know, what you're doing and wants to share it with somebody else. That's nice. I mean, and, and it really gets a sense of, of, of really the, the value you bring to this community. And, and really, unfortunately, what's being impacted right now as we go through this coronavirus. Yeah, the social end of it. This is what we kind of miss on the non-business side of it. But we have regular customers come in all the time. Sometimes they won't buy anything. <laughs> just come in here and talk. They just come in here and talk. This seems to be like 
I, I can sense you, you get everybody come in, they just want to say hi, right? That's right, that happens quite a bit. We have one or two guys that come in uh, you know, all the time. I mean, they're a good customer, but they do come to buy, they buy. Uh, one of them goes out in South Carolina with his golfing buddy. He'll come in and buy a couple of cases, just about everything we have, just to take down to Myrtle Beach or wherever they go to uh, golf. Obviously, this year they're not going to be doing that. Uh, we have uh, one group of people live out near Philadelphia, and they have family here. So they, every time they come back here, they come in here, and they stock up on a whole lot of things. And that's been over and over again. Next week, we got some people coming in from down by Charleston, West Virginia, coming in for their third visit to just to buy our stuff. And one of them just coming up just to buy it, and no other reason, because uh, we can't ship out of the state because we don't have any licenses in other states. Are you shipping inside the state right now? Do yes. you have a? Yeah, only in Pennsylvania. Do you have distribution? So they, you can go on your website, yeah. and you can ship directly through your website, right? right? We can do that. Is that how that works? That's how we do it. Yeah. Okay, and are you? Distributing anything right now with the LCB? Not yet. We, we're working on that right now. What are you looking to distribute at, at some point where people well, can find? We're going to probably start with the liqueurs. Okay. We have volume on that. Uh, and we're looking at whiskey about a year down the road. We get in there as well because we, we put in some capacity last fall and it's going to start to show up here you know, later this year and from the whiskey side which we didn't have much of before. <clears throat> when did you know, I mean, what was that aha moment for you or individually or both of you that you had something going that you really knew people liked? or th- What was that aha moment for you? I don't know. Like, one? Yeah. like when did you look at uh-huh. each other and say, we, we made the right decision? Maybe it's when our children says, you did the right thing. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's of course, they, they want free alcohol. Oh, yeah, okay. There's a motive behind what they were saying. <laughs> so, Mom, if you're listening, you know, go ahead, make alcohol. <laughs> yeah. They say it's a little strange to go to your parents asking for alcohol. Oh, okay. Rather than being told you can't have it. Like, That's very true, right? Yes. Yeah. But your kids asked, but was there a point in time where you, you, you kind of sat down and said, we're doing this right. This feels good. I don't know. Like we just eased into it. Uh, yeah, I think so. That wasn't like some aha moment. Were there things that you, were, were there some struggles or some things that you kind of looked at each other on the other end and say, why are we doing this? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that you remember. <laughs> uh, when you're putting your own money into the business, you know, we self-finance most of this. Okay. So, uh, you know, it hurts if things aren't going well for three years. You pay a price for that. You wonder if there's a, the, you know, the, that hole has a bottom to it at some point. But, you know, we've been around long enough to know that's the way businesses start. There's no reason to panic over something like that. Fortunately, we had resources and we could, you know, keep the thing moving along. Uh, and also, uh, I guess it was in the last year, this 2018, 2019, whatever that was, 2018, uh, the accountant came down and said, you got a business going here. Okay. With Sam McCotton going, he says, must feel good. You can pay yourself now. So, aha, that, that's an aha moment. Oh, that's an aha moment. <laughs> when your accountant says, hey, it's not just about paying your expenses and taxes, you can actually pay yourself now. He says, yeah, he says, you can pay yourself now. Of course, we never have, but okay. uh, we just keep putting it back into the business and make sure what debt we do have is paid down. So, you know, a year or so from now, 
it'll be ours totally. So, uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, when he came in, he says, you know, you, you got a good business going here right now. See, you say that, and again, this is that that imagery that I see with your pump, mm-hmm. and you just keep working the pump, and and one day, you know, you have people come in and they say we like your product, and your accountant says. You can pay yourself now, and you start to see some of those whiskey barrels and those rye barrels you lay down. You can start opening those up. It, it all builds that momentum to where you are today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And, and then hopefully just this COVID-19 situation that we have is just a blip in the window, you know, blip on the radar. Next year, we can go back to having the Whiskey Rebellion Festival and going back to that experience and, and, and having the community come together and do that again. Right? Yes. So are there things you want to try or things you want to taste today, things you want to share? Sure, absolutely. We'll uh, what, do that. What would you like to bring out? We'll start with our rye whiskey. How's that? That sounds great. Ed, you brought out some whiskeys. I see the Rebellion Straight Rye Whiskey and the Rebellion Rye. So yes. talk about those. Well, the uh, Rebellion Rye was our first whiskey. Right? And uh, we... As, as, uh, we, we wanted to go with the Monongahela style rye, which for people who don't know what that means, the flavoring grain is all rye. All right? The other type of rye, which is a Maryland style rye, has a, other um, grains in it, typically corn. Okay. The big commercial ones are mostly corn, 35%, so they don't have the big spicy taste that the old traditional uh, rye does, the, old, the Monongahela style rye. So are, is what we're tasting now a 100% Rye, or is there is there is there barley in there, or is there any weed or corn? There is a barley in here for the malting process. Okay, uh, the, the distiller's malt. Uh, it doesn't impart really any flavor. It's just it's just the enzymes for the enzymes for the mashing. The, the, and when you taste it, you'll know that this is all rye. It's got, it's a we call it a spicy taste. It's not a hot spicy like a hot pepper, like cinnamon or uh, it's got a lot of taste, heat. a lot up front. It's got a little warmth to it, but it's a smooth finish on it. And that's the hard part is getting a you know a rye that's young anyways to get a smooth finish because they're, they're sharp and naturally that's the rye grains like rye bread versus wheat bread completely two different kind of, you know, of breads and yeah with the rye you have to really baby it when you make it all the way through the process so you don't get anything in there that's going to give it really a strong you know taste and a burning taste. So so talk about that. How do you baby your rye? Well, one of the things we do, of course, well, the mashing process is pretty straightforward. We use a step mash process because we're using unmalted grains, so it's difficult to convert the, uh, the starches into sugar. But when you go to the fermentation, uh, and we don't ferment on the grains, we, we pump the wort out into the fermenter. An important thing to do there is you've got to keep your temperatures under control. So that's why you see a lot of small fermenters for us. If you have one big fermenter, uh, it gets hot. The fermentation is a hot process. So you'd have to add like a cooling jackets on it, and you'll see a lot of big operations of cooling jackets on there for manners to keep the temperature from getting out of control. So that's a very important part of it. Uh, you get some chemicals in there that you don't want uh, in that fermentation process. And one of the most important things is when you distill it. We do two still distillations, pretty typical a strip run and a spirit run. Strip is just, we, we take the wash from the, you know, out of the fermenter, just separate the, the whiskey and the water. Okay. The alcohol and the water away from the rest of the stuff that's in the fermenter. That's a, that's a pretty crude process. And then we do a spirit run, like you see today, going on, which is a little more control, lower temperatures. We use a little water control on ours. 
Uh, but the important part in all that is when you make the cuts. If you don't make the cuts right, then you get chemicals in there that you don't want. Obviously, the head's got to come out because that's where the toxic items are. Probably everybody who distills knows to take those things out. But then, you know, where do you make the cuts on the top end, where the tails are? Because you have to collect tails because tails are where the flavor is. If you're just collecting the hearts, you're making vodka, low-end vodka. So it really doesn't have a whole lot of taste. So you have to bring it, go to the tails where the chemicals are that have the flavors. Uh, but as you go into those, you see if you, when you're watching your uh, alcoholometer, you'll see the proof keeps going down and down. And the reason is you're collecting less pure alcohol, the ethanol. You're collecting more of the other kind of alcohols and chemicals and more water. Now the water's not going to you know, do anything as far as flavor goes. So a lot of people go into those tails too deep because you want to make more. <laughs> it's just you know business decision. But you're really taking away flavor. You're hiding flavors. Okay. Is what you're doing with other chemicals that have a stronger flavor than the, the grain, the chemicals in the grain that you want to emphasize in your whiskey. So that cut on the top end is real important, and we watch that very carefully. Uh, we probably cut earlier some other people, and I'm not going to say what that number is. It's what makes your rye your rye. That's right, because every, it, the kind of whiskey you want to make at that point is up to the distiller. Right. I think people, when they look at distilling, or they, they, they get too deep into, hey, what's your mash bill, right? Yep. But you're explaining and expressing a different idea that people need to understand as to what a distiller looks at. Yeah. Even in the separation of the tails and hearts, how important that is to you in what you're making. Very important. People don't think I'm about that. My... Yeah, I mean, people don't think about that. Yeah. I mean, you could take 10 different distillers that would use the same mash bill, but if they cut it at different areas, mm-hmm. it could be 10 different products. Amazingly different things. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Like if you go to 140 proof, you got to get a whiskey that's going to taste like this. If you go to 130 or 120, you're going to get a different taste. With the same mash bill, the same fermentation process, the same distillation, you just make your cuts later. So at that point, it's very important. So how did you come to settle on 90 proof? Uh, in, as far as what goes in the bottle? Yeah, rye is supposed to be a little more than, you know, 80 proof is pretty typical for a lot of whiskey right. and scotch whiskeys and things like that. Uh, I really didn't do much research. I just This is what you like. I, I, yeah, I like this. I like that a lot. And I did some, yeah, I looked at some other craft distillers out there and this is about where they were around 90 some 97 you know things like that uh, but most of them around 90 you see very few rise that are along a hail style rise anyways that are below 90 proof well let's try it let's do that <laughs> <laughs> so again you've you, you've grown up you've grown up drinking and, in, and enjoying whiskey yeah Judy were, were you a whiskey drinker no no what, what did you, in, did, was it wine or what did you enjoy drinking? Uh, our family wasn't much. There was, uh, you know, some whiskey's Canadian club was the, the one at Christmas. Really? Okay. Yes. But, uh, you know, my family didn't drink that much. I get a very floral note to this. Mm-hmm. And I, is that a characteristic of a Monongahela-style rye? Yeah, it is. It is. It's just it's just a wonderful nose to this, mm-hmm. and you doesn't don't. Burn your nose when it you doesn't at all. No. Um, so yeah, it's a, this is now one year which you're drinking here. Now we can get to it later. We looked at difference in colors. Very. One th- this one's almost like a um, a chestnut. 
Yeah. And this is almost like a um, twelve months. A lemony. Twenty-six months. Okay. All right. I love the nose, nose on this. Yeah. Burn. You'll, you'll see a lot of front taste on this, uh, but it shouldn't burn you when you're when it goes back down. It'll warm you up. I also I got a little citrus on the nose as well. I get a I get like a chocolatey finish to this. Um, like a tobacco or a dark, rich finish to this. And again, everybody tastes yeah, things differently. Yeah, they taste something different. Um, we, we've had people say that. That's, that's the barrel flavor there. A lot of that's the barrel flavor as well as the chemicals. The barrels still dominate flavor. This is delicious. It's almost like a nutty, chocolatey flavor. Almost like a Mr. Good Bar. <laughs> I, I would characterize this as a Mr. Good Bar. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, you like it? It is warm. You can, uh, oh, well, I, I would. That's what I want from a rye. But, I, uh, I want that warmth on the on the palate. Yeah, your lungs aren't hot. <laughs> so, Judy, you're telling me, hey, I'm not a rye or a whiskey drinker. Are you a whiskey drinker now? Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> this ball was full this morning. <laughs> oh really? Well, for those that can't see that, it's 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 eighty percent empty. <laughs> um. So this is. Is this something to you, Ed, that mirrors what you grew up on or what the idea of what you want to drink every day? Yeah, it really does. It really does. It, it's, uh, it's better when we drank when we were younger. And that's not because I'm a good distiller. It's just that they bought this. And you're a good distiller. <laughs> <laughs> Is, uh, we have a tradition in our, in our family of, of uh, alcohol. Okay. In a good sense. Well, I mean, what's the tradition? Not, not alcohols, but... Uh, on my father's side, there were like five brothers and one sister. Um, and they, uh, I was actually born on the Cumberland, Maryland, and my parents, my mother, father divorced, and I was only about a year old. So I moved up here with my, my uh, grandparents at the farmhouse. But they were all in the booze business. My dad had a bar. Uh, his brothers had bars, uh, you know, Milltown bars. Uh, a couple up in... Uh, uh, Midland, went over in East Liverpool, and you're, you're talking to a serious you know, mill bars at those and things like that. One, the, the one sister had a bar in Youngstown <laughs> and a restaurant. She had a restaurant with hers. Um, the, the sister went off and did food when everybody else just wanted yeah, to serve alcohol. Right. <laughs> and, we had a, uh, and then uh, on my uh, grandparents' side, uh, on my, uh, it's kind of a combination of my maternal, uh, maternal. You know, grandparents um, had a had a family that uh, had bars as well, and <clears throat> one of them was a uh, was a a character, okay, a horror character, but one was an exceptional character. And he had a place in Steubenville down there. Uh, name was L, his uncle L called him, uh, and he was into everything. We we're talking the 1930s, 1940s, things like this, in the 50s, my mother's generation. And he would actually send a truck down to some place in eastern Maryland or Virginia and buy the booze for his bar and avoid paying taxes on it. <laughs> and he would stop. It was always on a Sunday when his driver came back and looked like one of those uh, uh, prohibition types of the canvas truck. Right. Just packed with booze of all kinds. And it stopped at my grandparents' house. Uh, and it had dinner there. We ate dinner early on Sundays, like 
12 o'clock and 2 o'clock after church was out. And he'd sit there and drink that wine. After about four or five hours there, it didn't attract him to drive to Steubenville from here. Windy roads. It was like this. Yep. Never had a problem. And I'd take that alcohol down there and help it, uh, you know, hide it in his basement of his house. Uh, you know, and as he needed, he'd take it out and put it on the bar out front. And then <laughs> one year, uh, they knew what he was done. I mean, they, the officials knew what he was up to, but, you know, he probably... Yeah, there was a little bit of, little uh, bit of you know, uh, donations going donations on somewhere. Donations tables and things like this. Yeah. One year it was a uh, governor's election. And, of course, they had to show how tough they were on, on, uh, on businesses and, you know, just law and order types of things in general. And they raided him. And he was uh, at his house. They came in, it was like the Elliot Ness days. They were busting up all these cases of, of booze and things like this in his basement of his house. Uh, and uh, they're taking the pictures and all things like this. And that was like late in the year of the, of the election. Where he came up for sentencing, not sentencing, but for indictment, like in January, February of the following year. And with all this evidence, they, the prosecutors present all this, and they, they look through the thing, the judge says, insufficient evidence. <laughs> because? Because? Who knows why? But you okay. Can, you can speculate what went on there. All right. So, you know, the election was over, the governor won, and things like this. It's time to get back to his business to get back as usual. Don't business the way you're supposed to do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Did, does, um, was there any history or any understanding of the distillery he was bringing the whiskey or the rye out of? It, it, no. no. Okay. It was very, uh, very um, under the table, very secret. It wasn't the distillery. It was like through some distribution or something. Okay. It may not have been legal. I mean, well, it was legal. It was Canadian club and all this kind of stuff like this. And all, you know, thanks, but no tax stamps on it. Okay, I got you. So where they were getting it from. Who knows? Who knows? Nobody ever asked those questions. So, I mean, look, one of the like this is this is what it's all about, right? It's us sitting down, we're drinking a little rye, we're talking family. What you're here, what does the whiskey rebellion mean to you? I mean, what connection do you feel like you have to the whiskey rebellion? You know, initially, I, I didn't have much connection at all to okay. this thing. I, we knew it existed and all that and things like this, but I was away most of my career here, you know. Indiana, New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, you know, private business, and then on down and taught there in, you know, in Maryland. So it, you know, we didn't go to any of the events or anything like this until we got back. Uh, then we really never got connected to it until we actually started this business, you know, to be honest. It wasn't like we want to be part of the whiskey environment, nothing like that. I think, so. I think as a Pennsylvanian, I never, like, this is a passion for Dawn and I. Um, this is three years now that we just visit distilleries and get to meet, you know, wonderfully nice people like you, where we learn about the history. And I would tell you up until, um, you know, meeting people, um, you know, like Laura with the American Whiskey Convention and understanding more about the history yeah. of, of, of Pennsylvania rise and Pennsylvania whiskeys and things like that. Uh, I, I didn't, it's not something – they don't teach the whiskey rebellion – in, in 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 our high school or elementary no, classes, no. but I think it, what what it means to Pennsylvania, it, it was a it was a very impactful time in the in the young side of America. You know, here we have you know the government wanting to tax these farmers on on whiskey, and they're like, well, didn't we just fight over that? 
didn't we just fight over not wanting to be taxed and oh yeah yeah and it's all great, of that it's like great western pennsylvania spirit yeah i mean you're 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 a rebel why so so how did you pick rebellion rye well rebellion the whiskey rebellion rebellion that's why we picked that i was familiar with it okay uh you know talking to some people around here so well how do you come up with some names a lot of people just put their business name on here you know, and rye whiskey or bourbon whiskey or whatever down here. That, that's that, their business. We want to have we want to have a label that was distinctive, and on the back of it we have you know we talk about uh, uh, the Western Pennsylvania the spirit of Western Pennsylvania. So blur back there, and we, you know we like that, and the people here are still the same. <laughs> what I would tell you is might be a different subject. Can I tell you, you? You say bold in here twice. Um. And I think there is a bold flavor to this, and 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 I think it represents your boldness for saying, "Hey, at this point in our lives, we wanted to start a distillery." And and my feeling about this, like I can tell you, you're telling me this is 12 months. It doesn't drink like a 12 month rye whiskey. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I would tell you, I'm thinking you're at least 36 months in the barrel on this. It doesn't have that youthful character to me. That you would say, you know, you only let it, you know, play in the barrel for a short time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that 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 that's a credit to you and what you're doing. And maybe that goes back to what you talked about is where you're taking those tails. Yeah. Because it's not just the barrel that's imparting the flavor and the character of this rye whiskey. It's also what you're doing in terms of the distillation process. Mm-hmm. So you got the other one there. You got the other one ready to go here. Now this is one we uh, we obviously started a couple years ago, um, and we did it. We want to really make what we think would be a good, good whiskey. A good rye, a good rye really needs time in a barrel. There's no question about it. And start. this is aged two years. This is two years. What size barrels are you 26 using? 26 months, actually. By the, the way. These are 10-gallon barrels. 10-gallon barrels. This is out. We're, we're, we're moving up the other ones. But we put this in uh, some 10 gallons. Uh, see what's going to happen. Char 3. You know, you know, nothing new. New American uh, white oak. You have to do these. Uh, I wanted to do it to uh, make a good whiskey, but also... A marketing statement. We've arrived because a lot of people don't put out young distillers put out straight rye or straight bourbons or anything, whatever it might be. So we want to show that you know we've been here for a few years now and we know how to make whiskey. So there was a lot of marketing in that as well. Okay. And uh, we uh, we think we did okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm prejudiced, obviously, but this is a 102 proof. It's right out of the cask. So, so this is your cask. Whoa, man, you're just, I love your pours, by the way. Is this what people can expect to get here on tasting day? No, we're yeah. kind of, <laughs> Okay. Uh, I can't afford it. <laughs> now, this is a straight rye. Straight rye. And what are the characteristics of a straight rye? Same mash bill. Okay. I think we're just leaving the barrel longer. So just rye yeah. and a little barley. Yeah. A little malted this, barley. This one had a little more of a nose. Uh, it gets more caramel in it. Which comes out of the barrel. Some people say there's some vanilla. I, I get yeah. the vanilla yeah. that, that you would expect. Mm, it's a little sweeter smelling. It doesn't have a burning nose. That one has a little, has a little bit of a burn nose in it. It's, it's not much, but it's there. This I, one, I don't sense it at all. A little bit, but I think that's only because of the higher proof. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of alcohol. It, it kind of holds in the nose a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a, uh, it's a nice, nice smooth whiskey. It's a good sipping whiskey. Wow. All right. Yeah, you what, what you know what you're doing, right? You figured it out. 
you're going to go out. This is you just know what you're doing now, right? Yeah. Well, we're still learning, but we okay. We come along. This is your statement. This, this is a statement. That's just a whiskey. And I, I picture you right now with a bat in your hand, standing at home plate, <laughs> pointing out to the fences. That's right. And that's what this is. Yeah. It's it's you saying, "Hey, I'm calling my shot. Bring up the pitch. This is going over the fence." That's what you did yeah, with this. What, that was our purpose. This is like your Babe Ruth yeah. of, of whiskey, of rye whiskey. Mm-hmm. This is delicious. Yeah, yeah this is a good whiskey. We're, we're proud to say that. We're not even we're ashamed to say it's a good whiskey. What would your family say? Not, not your kids, but what do you think those people that are running canvas-covered trucks through the hills, what would they say about this? What would they say about this? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say, but I would think this, uh, Al would say, Ed, you did well. Okay. He was very, un- <laughs> it sounds like Al was very understated. Yeah, he was understated. He'd probably say, how come he didn't make his damn stuff when I was alive? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was only about six years old at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so. Again, I mean, what I get, what's really nice about this is, first of all, you know it's 102 proof, but it doesn't drink at 102 proof. Um, it doesn't drink again. From my standpoint, people's perceptions of rye is like people's perception of gin. People say, "Oh, I don't like rye. Why? Because I had really bad rye. I, I drank my parents' rye, whatever that was, and it wasn't good rye because basically at the time, what was rye then? Rye was like you make a cocktail out of. That's right. Right? It wasn't a sipping rye. It wasn't a nice, easy drinking rye." So you, you get introduced to something like this. It doesn't taste like a cast-strength rye to me. You get the same characteristics of your first rye. There, I, I still get the chocolatey notes there. I still get the nutty notes there. But I could sit there and just drink this all day. This is delicious. Yeah, more full-bodied. Yeah. Even Jim was up the other day from, you know, off, stopped and had some. Jim from Liberty Pole. Yeah. Okay. Right. We, we BS a lot. He was in and... Uh, he had something. He says, this is damn good rye whiskey. You know, when you're competitors, not competitors, but you're collaborators, we're not competitors, yeah, but you know, when people in the same business recognize it. You know, what I would say is, and that's the beauty of the world you travel in, and again, meeting you at Whiskey Smash, nobody there was competitors. No, you were all there no. to share your you know, your craft, what you do, what you get up and wake up and make all the time for people to enjoy. I get to enjoy this. Don gets to enjoy this. We just get to sit down and better understand the love that you're putting in your bottle. This is delicious. Yeah, Al would be proud. Yeah. Al would, Al would probably have a lot more to say. He'd say, hey, don't put a tax stamp on it and get it over, get it over to me now. Right? Put it in the back of your van and bring it down to me. That works. That works. That's probably what it's saying. So you're well known for your liqueurs. Yes. What yes, liqueurs do you want to try or what can we try today? Well, we can go through. We have five. We Let's start, not do we, five. <laughs> uh, they're only 20% alcohol. Okay. But uh, we started with the cherry, blackberry, and peach. was our original three. Okay. And I would just say, these sound like popular flavors to us. We didn't, have, we didn't do any research or anything like that. And, and the uh, the blackberry, of course, took off right away. Uh, the peach, especially in the summertime, did okay. The cherries still, people say, taste like cough medicine. Okay. So you're pre-prejudiced, you know, Robitussin and stuff when you're younger. Because some people won't even taste it because they think, wow, it's going to taste like cherry. Hey, you just gifted me something. 
because I remember drinking Robitussin as a kid, even when I didn't have a cough. So maybe that was the precursor of me. I mean, as a kid, I remember the alcohol cabinet. Like, do you remember? I mean, you're you're of that same generation. The alcohol cabinet wasn't locked up. It wasn't put high. As a kid, we had access to the alcohol cabinet. Now it's maybe a little different of a of an idea, but I like the taste of Robitussin. I don't know why. It was like a little my little after dinner drink or something. I don't know why. So yeah, let's try a few of those. So you brought out the blackberry liqueur, right? The blackberry. And you said that's forty percent. It's forty proof. Forty proof. Twenty percent alcohol. Twenty percent alcohol. alcohol. This is like when we walk in. This is what you smell, or it seemed like what we smelled when we walked in. Although you said you weren't distilling this today. It, it's just a nice sweet fruity. Okay, it's a nice sweet fruity smell when you walk in. Yeah. Now again, we talked about we were talking about just the experience, especially with blackberry liqueur, or blackberry brandy. This is one of the things you have an experience with as a as a kid, right? Seems like again, everybody grabs that peach schnapps or the blackberry right. brandy. Yeah. Dawn's shaking her head, yes. <laughs> this is so good. But it doesn't have, look, this is nice because it's tasty. You're almost drinking blackberries in a, in a glass. You're not drinking blackberry alcohol, right? That's right. This is delicious. Yeah, the, the, the one thing about this is it's very versatile. You can just drink it like this. Yeah, for, you can pour this over ice cream. That's popular with it. I was going to bring that up. Okay. Uh, it's a very good cocktail mix. We have bars here in Pittsburgh who buy it for cocktails. Um, I don't know if they still do, but the restaurant up the road here was making like a reduction, putting on a nice big piece of meat from it. That's an expensive thing, but they were doing it. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that worked well. It's just so versatile. It makes spritzers are big on it, just some club soda. And this, there were block ice. You can sit on your patio. You know, in the summer or in the winter, if you're whatever you want to do. Right. And you can sip that. It's very nice and smooth. It is, but you don't get that burn or you don't get that hard. You just get to enjoy the essence of the blueberry or the blackberry, excuse me, of what you're doing. Yeah. That's that's what really comes out of there. And this is what's, uh, we do this in a way that a very few people do. Uh, most liqueurs are made simply by taking some juice, whatever fruit that is, and dumping in some vodka or Everclear or something like this. You do that, you mix it up, put it in a bottle next day, put it on the shelf and sell it. Well, we don't do it that way. We we learned this again from the Leopold brothers out there. And, and then This was a really valuable trip for you. Very valuable trip. Very valuable trip. Uh, we make our liqueurs the way good brandies are made. You take the fruit juice and ferment it into wine. It takes several weeks to go through all that. In the summer, a little faster, but typically around three weeks for the fermentation to go. So we make we make a blackberry wine or a peach wine or whatever. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we take that and we distill the alcohol out of that fermented wine juice. <coughs> uh, and we get a, a, a distillate's around 100, 110 proof. It's clear, but it smells wonderful because it's carrying some of the aroma and the flavors of the fruit with that alcohol. Uh, so we're not, you know, distilling really high-proof stuff because then you lose the flavors. So we keep the distillate around 110. So we get a nice, clear, 
as the French call it, the eau de vie. Eau de vie, yeah. yeah. And that's where brandies are made. Now, if you're going to make brandy, you put it in a barrel at that point. They age it for years. But we're not making brandies, so we take that eau de vie, and we add more of the fruit juice and water back to it <clears throat> to bring the increase the flavor and to bring the proof down so it's drinkable. So that's the way we make it. It takes us four to five weeks before we start, and this is where you go into the bottle. So now my curiosity, Ed, is have you taken some of the eau de vie and put it into some of your used barrels and tried to do something with that? Uh, have you thought about it? It's crossed my mind. It has crossed my mind, yeah. Because you got the barrels. And that is just the time you know, to do that right now. Okay, I will volunteer. It should take a long time. I will help. Put in a barrel. <laughs> Yeah, we'd like to do that. I've even thought about it. Because that'd be, that'd be interesting. It'd be very interesting. Because yeah. especially since you've got the whiskey, the rye whiskey sitting there, yeah. and wondering what the marriage between the blackberry liqueur and that, that higher proof spirit and the right. barrel would do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing it right. Right. Well, actually, what I thought of that is with the blood orange. Okay. Because blood orange and rye go together like this. So, Judy, you were telling a story about limoncello. Oh yes. Um, now you make a limoncello. You, you're waiting for you. You're, you're working on that. You don't have bottle sales yet, but uh, you will have bottles available at some point. Yes. Well, we do make. We we've do been make making it. Right. Couple yeah. years. Right. Before we opened this store, I used to make limoncello for just our family, but used Everclear as the base because you could get a high proof, and that's the higher proof. It's easier to macerate the lemon zest. And then after we opened this, Ed uh, gave me uh, vodka to macerate. And Ed's vodka. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Ed made well, vodka, and we used a higher proof. And I used that, and our children said, wait, this is much better than what wow. you used to make. Okay. So that was the, oh, okay. So that's how we started doing the limoncello here, because... Yeah, with the wheat, you know, instead of keeping all of it for the uh, for the whiskey, and keep some, make the limoncello with it, so the vodka. So I use 150 proof. Okay, so you're doing a weeded vodka. Mm-hmm. Okay, that must have been such a an amazing eye-opening experience, right? Yes, especially when your children tell you, "Wait a minute, now you're making something better than you did before." <laughs> And we knew the di- what the difference was. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it's, uh, it's a lot smoother. It doesn't have the burn that a Neverclear gives you. So Ed's Vodka is very good. It's actually won uh, prizes. So talk about your awards. Well, our first awards, uh, we got, the first award we got was on the Blackberry. It was several years ago. It went to a national competition. We got a, a bronze medal. Um, we were quite pleased with that. Uh, I submitted the ride, didn't get anything. Not yet. At that time, not yet. But then this past year, we submitted to the uh, American Distilling Institute uh, the blood orange and the, the standard rye. And we got two silvers. Nice. On both of those. And we, we, did, we got knocked down point on this because it tied with the other rye. Okay. But there was a tiebreaker. And what was the tie? What was the the decisioning tiebreaker? You know, I never did understand. I I, I kind of thought maybe it was the labeling or something wasn't as cute. But it may have been. It wasn't a labeling competition, but so we we came in second. So what can I say? All right. We're quite pleased with that. 
That sounds wonderful. It's got really... Talk about your blood orange liqueur. Now, the blood orange is made exactly the same way we make all the others. There's no difference. So you're doing the eau de vie. We do the eau de vie and then flavor it with more uh, blood orange flute juice and a little bit of water, ultra pure water, uh, and it is bottled that way. So that's it. It's, uh, it has worked out very well for us because it is a very versatile product as well. It's uh, in Pittsburgh, it's doing real well in the cocktail bars. Um, and as well as uh, there's another restaurant out here, the Palazzo's, who, who uh, has a wonderful salmon dish, and they're now glazing it with our with our blood orange. So it's a very versatile. It's not as versatile as the blackberry, but it's enough. It's a nice flavor to it. You get the bitterness of the orange, sweetness of the orange, the essence of the orange. One of the things I think what you're doing is. You've, you have the liqueur as the vehicle to get something somewhere. And once, and I know this sounds crazy, but you're making liqueur, but you're also highlighting the essence of what the orange is. You're, you're really bringing out the orange, the blood orange is the, hey, we want you to remember that this is blood orange first, liqueur second. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. It does. So what you're doing is you're taking something as simple as a blood orange, and you're you're creating that vehicle to to bring it up to a new level. Yeah, we've. Uh, I think we did okay on this one. Uh, you're very the, the understated, nice, Ed. The nice, <laughs> the nice thing, yeah, about this is that people don't like the sweetness of the others. Peaches, yeah, of course, really sweet. Um, they something like this. And you got that tartness, that citric acid from the citric fruit, an orange in this case. And it bounces out some of that sweetness, and it's really very sippable. And it's one of the reasons it's become a good cocktail. Some, yeah. Here's some more. I'm putting some of this in the rye. That just is, to, yeah. yeah, I'm taking what's left and putting it in the rye. Um, just to give it that extra specialness of it. All right, Ed. What's the future for you guys? For Red Pump, what what do you what what do you see in the next couple of years? What what would you like to create for what you're doing? Uh, well, one thing we want to do is uh, become established as you know a serious producer of spirits. We're never gonna we're, it's never our goal to be big. You know we're not gonna put three five hundred gallon pots back here and buy a rick house somewhere to put barrels in. That's not our goal. Is that's not your vision? That's not our vision. Um, what we want to do... You just want the accountant to show up and say you can take some money. That's it. Take some money. <laughs> take some money, I'll go to Europe. Judy can take some money. <laughs> but it, I, but it, we can't go to Europe right now anyway, no, so stay here and just keep making stuff. Can't even go to Mexico. No. <laughs> but it's, uh, uh, you know, to become recognized as we can produce spirits just as good as anybody else, regardless of their size. And that that's really kind of our goal. It's not to be better than anybody else. It's just to be as good as we can possibly be with what the resource we have, the skills that we have, and things like that, and the financial resources. Uh, and the people recognize that. You know, there's always egos involved in this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You want to be recognized for what you do. Can I tell you something? So I don't see ego in you, that. though. I, I really don't. I, I think you just put your head down, and you make something, and you recognize in your own world between you and your family and Judy, and you say, this is good. Yeah, that, that's, that's all we really But it's care. always nice to get the, you know, recognition for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's what, what, I think what you're saying is 
hey, by the way, those those other producers can on, on a larger scale can make some stuff, but this is what we're making and it's really good, right? Right, right. That's what that's what our goal is. And we're going to get bigger than we are. Um, not What's bigger than you are? What does that look like? Well, probably maybe twice the size of what we're doing right now. Okay. And maybe up a two hundred fifty gallon pot. Okay. And, uh, we'll keep the liqueurs the same size as these two pots we got back here. Um, but we want to we want to get a little bigger in the whiskey business. How so? How? Yes. When you say bigger in the whiskey business, are you going to do a bourbon? No, no, no. Are, are, Same are you? I'm not going to. Yeah, just more volume. Okay. To meet the demand. I mean, we we sell this stuff out all the time. That's not an issue. But and I want to make sure everybody gets some. <laughs> do you have a four year sitting back there? Do you have? Are you looking to go bigger barrels? Well, what are yeah, your we're going to go bigger barrels, but I don't know if we're going to get much bigger than two years, at least for a while. Okay. Because we still got to make it and sell it. That's right. a requirement for us to do that. We're not at that point where we're so independent that we can just stick it in the barrel and say, the heck with it for four years. <laughs> yeah, I wish we were at that point. But we're not, honestly, we're not at that point. But we can wait a couple of years. Uh, because of the, the fortunate thing we have, we've got these liqueurs carrying the load. Right. They pay the bills. So, you know, so we can turn, keep turners over and turn over. Unlike some distillers, or a lot of distillers, who are just out of necessity, you got to sell your whiskey early. And you, you really want to. They don't want to. Everybody wants to make a good whiskey uh, or any kind of a good spirit. But sometimes, you know, you got to say, yeah, it's, it may not be as good as I want it to be, but, man, i got to pay the bills. Right. That's just being practical. That's not being, you know, lousy quality. People might, you know, c- can be concerned with it. But we're in a, we're in a good fortunate position. These reports just do so well for us. They, uh, they, 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 they carry the business while the, the whiskeys, we're learning how to make good whiskeys. Well, I think, look, I would tell you this. I mean, just understand that you know what you're doing and you have the practical understanding of what you need to do to get it there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, I think it does, yeah. In other words, think- you, you know what, look, you talk about this carrying you to get to where you are or this is the bread and butter of what you're making. But realistically, you're not just hey, we're going to make this just to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. You're making it because it's quality. Oh, yeah. You're making yeah. this because yeah. you're focused on this is going to be a great product or we're not putting it in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see. Yeah. Well, that's what we want to do. From everything we tried today, you're making it because it's really good and you want to put it in the bottle and share it. And that's why people are coming back to you guys. So where do people find you? Where do they find me? Yes. Uh, <laughs> other than our website, okay. spirits.com. Okay. They can look on there. We got a little video in there about us. Uh, we got our products listed and what the philosophy of our business is. Uh, of course, they can buy online and uh, they find us that way. Um, I don't do too much social stuff. I, I do some Instagram. And it's uh, my weak point, which I know up front, is marketing. I'm not a marketer. You know, if I don't make a living marketing and selling something without any other <laughs> expertise there, I'd be, I'd be in, probably buried in the ground by now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd be going crazy. So I have to, that's an area of work, and we hire somebody who does that for us now. Okay. Um, so, uh, but we're going to get more uh, involved with social media, so it help promote that. That's important. It is. Obviously. It's extremely important. It is. If you think you can get by without it, forget about it. That's not going to happen. 
unless you've just got something super spectacular people got to beat your door down. How many businesses have something like that? Not necessarily anybody. <laughs> so we have to get more involved in that. So that's uh, you're going to see more of that over the next six months. Okay. We actually wanted to start the campaign months ago. We did a lot of things over the winter to set us up with this COVID thing on. It's like you're spending money for, you know, it wasn't going to bring us the kind of return we want to get. But so we've been a little patient, but hopefully... Who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of months. We hope to start to launch this program that we have. We have a, a nice video just put out. Uh, we have some slideshows and you know, things like this. Uh, the person who does our marketing is, it, <coughs> and our social media and all our commercial work and does all our label designs is down here in Cannesburg at Malone Advertising. Does first-class work for us. Got a lot of nice, you know, big-name clients. Uh, we pay a little extra money. We get our money back from him. So uh, we, uh, he's going to be doing that for us and promoting it on his sites as well. Uh, we have a, uh, a prominent uh, spokesperson. I don't know if you're hockey fans or not. Who's your hockey? Uh, uh, Phil Bork, the old two-niner, does our, okay. our pitch work for us. Nice. Events with us and stuff like that. He loves the whiskey, of course. Uh, you know, hockey player. Uh, so he does that kind of things for us. Uh, I think you say Mario Lemieux, but oh, no, 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 he's no. not as good as Phil Bork. I mean, obviously, no, not not as good. No, not when it comes to you know PR, Rick. Yeah, he's <laughs> natural with people. Yeah, that's what you want somebody out there. Okay, he doesn't have to know what he's talking about. All he does, but he can just go out there. When he, when we go to events with him, he just people lined up, and uh, the other booths empty out. They all come over to our place. You know? Nice. We like that. Uh, the wild things up here when he comes to see. You know, there's six people wide and twenty people deep. At our booth, and he'll sign stuff, and he'll BS with him. Take his rings off, five rings, and let people wear them. That's a big, that's a big deal around here. It's like Super Bowl rings and you know, stuff like that. He'll five rings them. isn't as good as six, though. Well, he's got five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'll stand there, and the person will hold their hand up like with all the rings on. He's, that's fun. He's got their arm around him. So that's, that's fun. So that, yeah, that's good stuff like that. We're you know we're working on those kind of things. He's got he's in our next video and. If you got time, I'll show it to you. The video? Yeah. Sure. If I can call it up, Mike just sent it. It's not quite done yet. Okay. But uh, can you bring my computer up? Sure. Anyway, hold on. Where are you located physically? How do people find you as an address? On oh, an address? Yes. Ooh, good question. Where can people find you? <laughs> you mean where our business is here? That's yeah, the only way people are going to find you. All right. Uh, so where do people find you, Ed? Not sure. You're still not sure. Not sure. I, okay. What you mean. Let me let me ask you one more time. So, Ed, where do people find you if they want to come and visit? What's your address? My address, 32 North Main Street. So That's come to 32 North Main Street in Washington, Pennsylvania. Look, there's a rich history here in West Washington, Pennsylvania. Yeah. You got the David Bradford House. You can learn about the Whiskey Rebellion. Next year, 2021, you're going to have the Whiskey Rebellion Festival again. Right. People are going to come out and they're going to be able to just meet you and Judy they're going to be able to meet you and just enjoy that that community spirit again look I can tell you Dawn and I are really grateful for the time that we spent with you today we're sorry we didn't wear overalls but we'll do that next time make sure you do next time and uh, look I mean this is about the hat this is our fermented adventure (laughs) this is our fermented adventure and we appreciate you being a part of it and being along the journey with us and we're grateful for the time you spent with us well good thank you very much for visiting us we appreciate it thanks for being with us too we're glad you came thanks very glad you came to see us